Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. This, today's message is a kind of continuation of a sporadic series that I began a few weeks ago because I've been dealing with and concerned about people who have been confused by that cult that invaded our Shepherds Conference a few weeks ago. And they came in order to disseminate a, a, what is really a total corruption of the gospel message. They dropped their literature all over campus, and they, some of you, I'm sure, saw they parked a neon truck outside that advertised their website where they told people, among other things, that they had discovered a better understanding of the gospel than anyone in two millennia of church history. And in reality, they are peddling an error that is fundamentally no different from the twisted gospel of those heretics who prompted the Apostle Paul to write the book of Galatians. For some of you, this may be new, so I'm going to read to you what they say on their website. If you had followed the QR code on their lighted truck and went to their website, here's what it said. Here's what the opening page, very first words said. They said, we have become convinced that faith alone is not enough. We believe getting to heaven requires we also do the works of faithfully obeying God's commands. In other words, they say, obedience, like faith, is another condition or necessary instrument in our justification. That there is the heart of their error, that obedience, like faith, is another instrument of justification. That's the exact words they use. Then the next sentence, however, they said, we recognize the possibility that we might be wrong. And uh, my answer to them was, you are wrong, and it's pretty easy error to refute. You just go to Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, to those who work, the reward is granted according to what they earn, which, by the way, you don't want. But to those that don't work but believe on him who justifies the ungodly, their faith is counted for righteousness. That's really the heart of Paul's gospel message. And he spent most of the polemical efforts that you see in the New Testament refuting people who were teaching the very error that these guys with the truck were, were peddling. And, and by the way, then they offered a $25,000 reward to anyone who could convince them that they are wrong. The problem is they're unteachable. Nobody's ever going to convince them that they are wrong. Proverbs 1.7 says, "'Fools despise wisdom and instruction.'" And although Scripture is full of statements that explicitly deny the exact flavor of false doctrine that these guys are peddling, their plan seems to be that they're going to pretend to be unpersuaded no matter how many clear biblical statements can be cited against them. And they evidently think that if they persist in doing that and keep their $25,000, they can claim victory. And I'm not interested in trying to change petrified minds or melt hearts that are stone cold and hard as, hard as steel. But I am concerned to provide answers to members of our flock who may wonder what the Bible says in answer to the claims that these guys keep making. And so this morning, I'm going to take the subject up for a third time in the past month, I think. It's the third time we've dealt with this same subject. But I like, like the Apostle Paul who says, to the Philippians, look, I know we've been over this before, but you need to hear it again. So here we are. I'm going to take this subject up and show you why the true gospel of Jesus Christ has no room for any doctrine that tries to make the sinner's own works instrumental in the process of justifying, justifying us before God. A few weeks ago, we looked at a passage from Galatians chapter 2, and so this morning's passage is kind of a continuation of that. I want to cover five verses at the very beginning of Galatians 3. Galatians 3 verses 1 through 5, and we're at a bit of a disadvantage jumping into the start of this chapter cold because context here is very important. There is an abrupt change in tone at the beginning of Galatians 3. And whoever originally divided Scripture into chapters and verses, and I hope you understand the, the verse numbers and the chapter breaks aren't inspired. Those were done years ago by people making the Bible easy to 
find where you are and easy to memorize verses and all that, but those aren't inspired. Whoever decided how to divide it wisely chose this place for a major chapter division because this is the start of chapter 3 is a very significant turning point in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Here he launches into the very heart of his message to these Galatian churches. And it makes a powerful impact when you're reading through the entire epistle. If it hits you hard, or if it seems like Paul has suddenly turned very severe, that is exactly how it would have sounded to the original recipients of this letter. It comes, chapter 3, verse 1, as a bit of a shock. And I have no doubt that is precisely the effect Paul wanted to achieve. These are very pointed words. It's the kind of thing you don't say unless you really want to grab someone's attention and convince them that not only are you serious, you're really upset, and he's upset. So let's start with just a very brief review of the epistle up to this point, because I want you to follow the flow of thought in Paul's argument and and understand why he is writing with so much polemical force. You know, he's usually very tender with people in the church. Here he just unleashes that, that Pauline polemical force. Remember that he's writing this epistle to the churches that were scattered through the region of Galatia. This is not one church in a city called Galatia. Galatia was a region, and, and these were churches, many of them, several of them at least, that knew him personally. He and his closest associates on his missionary journeys had founded these churches, and they were predominantly Gentile churches in what was a strongly Gentile region, and they were therefore intimately associated with Paul's personal and apostolic ministry because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. But there were some influential men who, it seems, had some kind of affiliation or association with the church in Jerusalem, obviously a Jewish church. These were perhaps men who had even been appointed to some kind of official role as perhaps even elders or representatives of this church sent out as goodwill delegates from the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and they had come into the Galatian region, and they were trying to conform these Gentile churches to Jewish culture and persuade these Gentile converts to to follow the Old Testament ceremonial practices. And these were men steeped in Old Testament law. Acts 15 says that the church at Jerusalem had some former Pharisees who had embraced Christ in name, but without really understanding or believing what Christ had accomplished on the cross. And these may have been those men or others who had been strongly influenced by these former Pharisees. And very large in their thinking was the Pharisaical belief that Gentiles were inherently unclean and strangers and foreigners to the covenant of God and therefore they looked down on everything that had the taint of Gentile culture. And in their minds, the the covenant of salvation was all about identification with Israel, the people of God, and therefore they had come to embrace the opinion that all of the Old Testament ceremonial ordinances, especially circumcision, was an essential mark of a true man of God Someone, anyone who had membership with, in any of God's covenants, they said, must be circumcised. And we refer to these men as the Judaizers because they were convinced that Christ, who is Israel's Messiah, had a unique and exclusive relationship with the nation of Israel. And so you couldn't be, they thought, you couldn't be a real follower of Christ as a Gentile. They were willing to accept Gentiles in the church only if the Gentiles first became Jewish proselytes. That's why they insisted on circumcision. It was, the, it was necessary if you wanted to become a proselyte to Judaism. And so they placed a great deal of emphasis on, on this act as the mark of covenant membership. And their one mission in life was to make sure that the church worldwide retained its Jewish culture and identity. It seems to me that they came to the, the Galatian churches with 
with this singular goal in mind. They wanted these Gentile churches to adopt all of the external symbols of Old Covenant Israel. They probably presented themselves as biblical scholars and experts in biblical law and who had come to instruct these poor Gentile converts about how to be better Christians by adopting all of the rituals and the lifestyles of Old Testament Judaism. There are people today who believe you have to do that too, by the way. And, and that message confused these Galatian churches, predominantly Gentile churches, because it was certainly different from anything they had ever heard from the Apostle Paul, who had come to them and brought the gospel and founded these churches, and they never heard from him that Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. So naturally, this generated some controversy and confusion in the Galatian churches, and the Galatian Gentiles probably responded at first to the Judaizers' teaching by pointing out to these men that you're bringing a different message that's unlike anything we ever heard from Paul. You remember, Paul himself had been a Pharisee prior to his conversion, but he says in Philippians 3 that he realized his own self-righteousness as a, as a Pharisee was just dung, filth, utterly worthless in terms of its ability to earn any kind of merit or approval from God. And so Paul had purposely and and emphatically set all of that stuff aside and abandoned it, he said, in favor of the perfect righteousness that was his by imputation from Christ. And, and there's no way Paul would have ever wasted time in a Gentile church trying to get the Gentiles to follow the external elements of a legalistic religious system that he himself had been liberated from when he became a Christian. And so it's obvious from the tone and the, and the text of the book of Galatians that the Judaizers had answered whatever critics they encountered in the Galatian churches by challenging the apostolic credentials of the Apostle Paul. They also questioned the accuracy of the message that he had proclaimed to them, or at least questioned the fullness of it. They, they, they said things like, Paul's not a real apostle. We represent true Christianity, and we have the credentials and the knowledge and the implicit approval of the apostles in Jerusalem, and you ought to forget what Paul taught you and listen to us instead. That was their message, or at least that was their tactic. And so the first item on Paul's agenda in this epistle was the defense of his own apostleship and, and a reaffirmation of the gospel he proclaimed. And that consumes the first two chapters of of Galatians. He recounts the history of his own conversion. He, he recaps the circumstances under which he was made an apostle and given the gospel, he says, by special revelation directly from Christ. He says he received both the gospel and his apostolic commission personally from the resurrected Christ. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to men, for I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he explains then how all the other apostles had met him and heard his testimony and recognized and affirmed both the message he preached and the authority that Christ had given him to be an apostle. Chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 9, he's making that case, defends his apostleship. And then he describes, actually, a conflict that he had with Peter in which he had to set even Peter straight when Peter began to compromise. And, and that episode goes through the end of chapter 2. We looked at part of it the last time I spoke. And, and I want to say this is Paul at his most personal. The only other place where Paul talks so much about himself is in 2 Corinthians, where, again, he's even, even more defensive about his apostolic credentials. He's having to, it's probably the same, at least the same brand of heretics were attacking him in Corinth, and so he defends his apostleship again. But he says along the way numerous times, he doesn't like boasting. He doesn't like to talk about himself. He despises the idea of boasting, and he wasn't even normally given to any kind of vigorous self-defense against his critics. 
But he had to defend his apostleship for the sake of the gospel, because if he's a phony apostle, then his message you can ignore. So he has to defend his apostleship, and he does. And he spends two short chapters doing that at the very beginning of this epistle to the Galatians. And that is a wonderful, intimate, personal insight into the life and heart of the Apostle Paul. And so this is the sum of everything up to this point where we're going to take up. Paul has defended his apostleship. He has made it clear that there have been at least a couple of times when he had to defend the purity of the gospel against the compromise of other church leaders in the Jerusalem church, as well as Peter himself in that infamous episode in Antioch. And and the clear point Paul is making is this. You wonder, why does he have to embarrass Peter like this? Why does he bring that up? Why does he talk so much about the conflict over these issues? Here's why. Because he's making the point that the truth of the gospel takes priority over anyone's reputation or personal position, personal dignity. doesn't matter. If the gospel is, is going to be threatened, then the truth needs to come out, even if it... Even if it isn't great for the reputation of someone like Peter. And so the epistle so far has been one long commentary on the warning that Paul issues at the, at the very start, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where he says, even if we or even an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel that we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. And then he says it again, Right away, as I said so before, so I say again now. In other words, he's going to repeat it in the very next verse. If any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. So he's saying it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's a bigwig from Jerusalem or a former Pharisee or a prominent apostle like Peter or even an angel from heaven, even if it's Paul himself, he says, if he brings a message contrary to the gospel that you've already heard, treat that person as anathema. Because the truth of the gospel trumps everything. And he says, don't forget that. He says it twice, just so that they'll remember. And so for two chapters, Paul has been defending the gospel by defending his own apostolic credentials and also by recounting these experiences from his own, uh, these episodes from his own experience But here then is that great turning point, when Paul turns from his own experience to the experience of the Galatians themselves, and now he begins to address them directly, and in not very flattering terms. He reminds them how they were saved, and what they had experienced, and where they had come from to get to this point, and he cites all of those things as proofs of the great doctrine of justification by faith the principle of sola fide, that faith alone is the instrument of justification. That is what he began defending back in chapter 1. That has been the focus of this epistle all the way, justification by faith. Chapter 2, verse 16 is one of the key verses in all of Scripture about this. And it's still the issue with Paul here. But his style of defense changes, and the nature of his arguments change, and now He's going to defend the doctrine of justification in a way that is even more personal and more polemical and more biblical and more doctrinal and more direct than anything he has written so far. And that's why this passage takes us to the very bedrock of Paul's own theological foundation. And he signals the change in tone and direction with some shocking and plain-spoken personal words. Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, this is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Now, we'll limit ourselves to those five verses this morning because they stand together kind of as a unit, and, and there's more than enough here to fill our time. But I want you to notice, first of all, this is a series of questions, and all of them put directly to the Galatians in the most blunt and candid and personal terms. He is not concerned with diplomacy here. He wants them to get the point, no matter how straightforward he has to be with them. And notice, every verse in this section contains a question, and in fact, every sentence in this section is a question framed in in a way that would make them think and examine themselves and review their own spiritual history and reflect on the way they had allowed themselves to be so easily shaken from the foundation that Paul's clear teaching had laid for them. Paul is shocked that they they could be moved away from the gospel so easily and so quickly. From the opening words of the epistle, he has tried to make it clear that the religion represented by these Judaizing heretics is a whole different religion. This is not just maybe a different flavor of Christianity, but it's okay, these guys are brethren, so let's not fight about it. Not that at all. He says it's a whole different religion, foreign to authentic Christianity, and he's saying the gospel these men were preaching is a different gospel. The means of salvation they presented was a whole different way of salvation than the Galatians themselves had embraced when they first embraced the gospel. And and the discord between these two different contradictory gospels was not just a mere difference in emphasis. The Judaizers, Paul says, were teaching a whole different religion. They weren't simply preaching a a, a similar message with a different emphasis, not that at all. And despite what the Judaizers themselves claimed, what the Galatians were hearing from them was not a better, more pure, more authentic way of being a Christian. It wasn't a, a more full gospel. In taking the Galatians back to the Old Testament ceremonial law and trying to impose that on them, they were make, not making them better Christians. They were derailing their faith completely. And so diplomacy is not what was called for here. This kind of jars our postmodern ears because we don't like conflict either. And, and in fact, in these postmodern times, it's politically incorrect ever to tell anyone that their worldview or belief system is wrong, even if it's a man who thinks he's a woman. Shame on you if you tell him he's wrong. And there was some of that feeling, I think, even in the early church. Paul ignores it. He says, this is not the time for diplomacy. I like how he didn't try to answer these heretics through an appeal to scholarship. He doesn't offer to dialogue with them or or argue with them in public so that they could pay him $25,000 if, if he wins the debate. He is not only unwilling to compromise with them, he doesn't particularly interested in talking to them. He wants to straighten out the errors that they have sowed among the Gentiles. And so like a faithful shepherd, he only wants to expose these wolves and unveil the seriousness of their error and warn his flock not to follow the wolves. He takes a completely different approach from what you'd see today from most, you know, respectable evangelical leaders, where, you know, you're, you're supposed to affirm what you like about every point of view you disagree with, and, and you, you must underline the strong points of what the heretics believe. And then, but only then, if you're really gentle about it, you can give some weak little milksop words of caution about what it is you disagree with. After all, Paul could have said, he could have honestly said, now, now these are well-meaning men, they're brothers, and it's good that they recognize the authority of the Old Testament, and they're bringing us a much-needed reminder that Christianity has Jewish roots. He could have commended the Judaizers for their scholarship and their zeal for the law and all their knowledge of Old Testament history and all of that, but he didn't do any of that. He dismissed these men and their doctrine as a serious danger to the spiritual health and well-being of the church, and and he stresses the fact that their doctrine, because it nullifies the central truth of justification by faith, 
Their doctrine is undermining the very foundations of the gospel itself. In fact, he calls it a different gospel. He doesn't affirm that these men are brethren, even though they claimed to be Christians, and they evidently held positions of prominence in the Jerusalem church. But Paul rejected both them and their doctrine as serious danger to the truth of Christ, and he's absolutely blunt about it, which is important to acknowledge because, frankly, that is the opposite direction what so many people in church leadership today want to take us. Frankly, the the Judaizers' doctrine had in it the very same seeds of error that you find in the Roman Catholic Church with its emphasis on rituals and ceremonies as instruments of justification. That's what Catholicism teaches. It had much in common with the the postmodernized Christians starting 20 years ago with the you know new perspective on Paul and and the emerging church movement where justification is often portrayed as a process that depends in the end on the believer's own works of righteousness for what they refer to as final justification before God. You find similar errors in the teachings of Seventh-day Adventism and many expressions of Anglicanism and high, high church Presbyterian sacramentalism and some, some versions of modern Lutheranism and other legalistic varieties of religion that are currently making inroads into the evangelical mainstream from the fringe of the evangelical movement. And in fact, I think the very same thing is true of this group that parked their trucks outside of our... In fact, I would say it's true in spades with those guys. They have made this the prominent thing of their teaching, where their stress and most of the stress in their teaching is placed on what believers must do rather than on what Christ has done on our behalf. And as the gospel continues to take more and more of a back seat in the visible church today, more and more people, you hear this, people pleading for dialogue. Why don't you just sit down and discuss this with these guys? They want a friendly, soft-spoken, academic-style approach to dealing with serious heresy. And I think the example of the Apostle Paul here is more in line with the direction genuine believers need to take in answering all of these drifts away from the simplicity of the gospel and the, the principle of sola fide. And so I appreciate Paul's bluntness in these verses, and I'm encouraged to be blunt as well. Not that that is anything you'd ever hear from me. Not so long ago, J. Gresham Machen also drew courage from Paul's example in Galatians as he sought to answer the various errors of his day. He was fighting early religious liberalism, and he pointed out that Galatians is included in our New Testament canon for a really good reason. It is true that Paul was confronting a very specific error that in some ways was unique. The Judaizers were arguing specifically for continuing the Old Testament ceremonial observances in the church as an instrument of uh, of gaining justification. And I don't think anyone today would teach that precise idea. And some people might even be inclined to think that, therefore, this letter to the Galatians has not so much relevance to our situation today because, frankly, there's no one with any influence in the church anywhere today who is arguing that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. But the idea is still the same, that faith alone is not a sufficient instrument for justification. And that's what Paul was writing to contradict. Machen wrote this about it. He he read Paul's epistle, and this same thing stood out to him, and he wrote this, quote, "'At first sight,' It it might seem to destroy the usefulness of the epistle for the present day to say that nobody's teaching this error now. For we of today are in no danger of desiring to keep Jewish fasts and feasts. But a little consideration will show that that is not at all the case. The, The really essential thing about the Judaizers' contention was not found in those particular works of the law that they urged upon the Galatians as grounds of justification, but in the fact that they urged any works in this sense at all. 
The really serious error into which they fell was not that they carried the ceremonial law over into the new dispensation, but that they preached a religion of human merit rather than a religion of divine grace. And Machen went on to point out that virtually every error the church has faced since the early part of the church history has at its heart this very same false teaching of justification by works. Machen saw it in the teaching of people who talked about surrender rather than faith as the means of sanctification. He saw it in the teaching of those liberals who said that love and good works are the true essence of Christianity rather than sound doctrine. He saw it in the various theories of the atonement, theories that actually are being revived and touted in many circles today where people are teaching, you know, that Christ's death on the cross was merely an example for us to follow and and not a substitute punishment for our sins. Machen said this, quote, these are all just different ways of exalting the merit of man against the cross of Christ. They are all of them attacks on the very heart and core of the Christian religion, and against them, all of the, against all of them, the mighty polemic of this epistle to the Galatians is turned. And he was right about that, and I know he would, he would uh, include this little cult with their lighted truck in that list as well. So, This is an especially relevant passage of Scripture, and it confronts all of the main errors that are assaulting the church today. The principle Paul is defending is the very heart and soul of Christianity, and it would be be sheer folly to think that this doctrine, this principle of sola fide, the doctrine of justification by faith, is merely some academic point of doctrine, or, or to think that the defense of justification by faith actually requires a dispassionate, friendly, academic dialogue as opposed to the passionate proclamation of the truth. And by the way, the principle Paul is defending here is the very same principle that sparked the Protestant Reformation. It's the same point of doctrine Martin Luther called the article of faith by which the church stands or falls. It's the same doctrine John Calvin called the principal hinge of religion. It's a point of truth that calls for a clear and passionate defense, and those who think this is not really worth fighting over haven't begun to grasp the essence of the gospel message. It is worth fighting for. Now, the series of questions Paul raises here, all of them work to the same end. He is contrasting two radically different, mutually exclusive gospels. Again, he sees this heresy as a different gospel. And he says there are two possible gospels. One of them promotes a religion of human works, and that's the religion that was being peddled by the Judaizers. The other is a message that's all about divine grace, and and it promises complete justification before the judgment throne of God on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf. These are two different messages, and, and the questions Paul proposes to the Galatians set up three contrasts. And so we're, I'm going to let this trio of contrasts be my outline, and if you want to get the main points, here they are. There are two completely incompatible approaches to religion. These are distinguished, first of all, by the difference between law and grace, or rather law and gospel. Second, by the difference between flesh and spirit. And third, by the difference between works and faith. These are the three contrasts that set these two gospels apart. The difference between law and gospel, difference between flesh and spirit, and the difference between works and faith. And so with that as our outline, let's work our way through this text. First, notice the distinction Paul makes between law and gospel. Verses 1 and 2. O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, like I've been saying, the bluntness of his language here is really stunning. He doesn't call them brethren, even though he had already addressed them as brethren back in chapter 1, verse 11. 
It's clear that he did regard them warmly as his brethren and and as his spiritual children, sheep for whom his pastoral care was important and he was responsible for them as a shepherd. But here, all of the warmth and brotherhood suddenly gives way to some very abrupt and severe-sounding language. Oh, foolish Galatians. And that word foolish is from a Greek expression that speaks of a lack of understanding. It signifies spiritual dullness. This is not the kind of cheap personal insult that Jesus condemned in Matthew 5.22, where, you know, Jesus said, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hell fire. And there, Jesus actually used a totally different word for fool that speaks about a godless person, an unbeliever. What he forbids is a kind of angry name-calling. But as a matter of fact, in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, when, you know, Jesus appeared to some disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, and they were discouraged, they're feeling totally defeated after uh, the crucifixion, and, and before Jesus actually revealed to them who he really was, he said to them, these disciples, now these are redeemed men, they're followers of Christ, friends of his, He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And there, Jesus uses the exact same word Paul uses here. In effect, so Jesus is giving us the definition for this brand of foolishness. It is a slowness of heart to believe. It's a spiritual dullness. And that's what Paul is saying about the Galatians. This is not a crass insult. He's not calling them unbelievers. This is an apostolic assessment of their spiritual insensibility, their their willingness, the ease with which they were influenced by the Judaizers' error reflected a kind of inexcusable, wooden, false spirituality. It was almost as if some witch had cast a spell on them. And so Paul says, who bewitched you? What has so blinded your eyes that you're missing something that should be so obvious? Now, he's using hyperbole, of course. He didn't really think that they were under the power of some evil magic. But frankly, he says, in effect, that's the only benign explanation for the confusion they had about something that was so basic to their faith. They certainly ought to have known better. Paul himself had taught them better. In fact, look at the next phrase in Galatians 3.1. Who bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You've seen the gospel in real life. In fact, in the King James Version of that text, he says, before your eyes, Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now, that can be a confusing statement. It's an interesting one. Paul is suggesting to the Galatians that they are like eyewitnesses who don't believe something that they saw clearly with their own eyes because it's as if they had been put under the the power of a hypnotist. Now, don't misunderstand this. Paul is not suggesting that any of the Galatians were actual eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. Christ had not literally and visibly been crucified before their very eyes and in in their very midst. He says, he uses language like that, but that can't be what he means. What does he mean? I looked this up in several commentaries, and Matthew Henry, who is one of my favorite commentators and normally a reliable commentator, suggests that this is a reference to the sacrament of communion and that the ordinance of the Lord's table is a visible picture and reminder of the atoning work of Christ. And I don't like to disagree with Matthew Henry, but that seems like a stretch to me because there's nothing in the context here to suggest that Paul has the communion ordinance in mind in this verse. And frankly, while it is true on a certain level that the Lord's table is a memorial and it's a visible, tangible reminder of the body and blood of Christ, participating in the sacrament of communion in and of itself wouldn't really be the same thing as being an eyewitness to the crucifixion. While it's true that the elements of the Lord's table are 
symbols and reminders of the body and blood of Christ, the breaking of bread and drinking of wine isn't really a vivid portrayal of the act of crucifixion. But Paul is using a word here that speaks of the most vivid kind of evidence. It literally means uh, like drawing a picture or or displaying a, a, a movie on a big screen. Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And the Greek word there is prographo, which does convey the idea of a large, public, vivid illustration like a billboard. In fact, most modern versions say something like this, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly put on display among you as crucified. The New King James Version says, clearly portrayed. The New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the Legacy Standard Bible all say publicly portrayed. And that actually gets to the heart, I think, of Paul's point here. His stress is on the clear and open and public portrayal of the crucifixion. One translator coined this expression, publicly placarded. Before your very eyes, Christ was publicly placarded among you as crucified, which is to say it's as if a a graphic picture of Christ crucified had been posted on a billboard or shown on a movie screen in the sight of all the Galatians together. And not just once, but repeatedly, That's the idea of the verb here, and I think what Paul really means by this is absolutely clear. He's making a reference to his own preaching, his preaching of the gospel in their midst. Remember his own words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2, that he's determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here's how he described his own gospel preaching in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. And here in Galatians, the final chapter, verse 14, he says, "'May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" So the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ was the single central focus and the substance of the gospel Paul preached. What he's saying here is, "'I never pointed you to anything but the work Christ had done on your behalf. I never told you purposely, that there's something you have to do to add to that. But the cross was the central focus and the substance of the gospel Paul proclaimed. And I'm convinced that when he said, when he said this, he, he, he's not suggesting that the gospel he preached consisted of a narrative description of the crucifixion and resurrection event. It includes that, but that alone is not the gospel. The gospel is Paul's explanation of the meaning of the cross, the significance of Christ's atonement. Listen to Galatians 6.14 again, this time the whole verse. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or to put it as simply as I know, the heart of Paul's message is this. The cross was a substitution where Christ bore our sins and, and carried the, suffered the full penalty of our guilt, and he did this on our behalf, those of us who believe, and his resurrection is then proof that God accepted that sacrifice, and so we now participate in the resurrection life of Christ. Justification is not merely a future reality that hinges on what we do in this life. God isn't waiting to see whether He will accept us based on how faithfully we perform. But for the believer united with Christ, justification is a past tense event. It already happened. It's complete. It's unalterable. It's the guarantee that eternal life is our present possession even now as we look forward to the full outworking of it, which will bear the fruit of good works. But our justification does not in any way depend on our own good works. And if you set aside that truth in favor of a message about something you have to do to, say, participate in the covenant or, or fill up what was somehow lacking in the sacrifice of Christ, then you have, in effect, abandoned the true gospel in favor of the law, which never had the power to save anyone. 
In fact, that's the very truth Paul states at the end of chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The gospel itself is a message about the perfect fullness of salvation in Christ. Justification is not something we can earn, and therefore it is not at all about what we do. And if it's not about what we do, then it has nothing in common with the message of the law. Don't confuse the gospel with the law. Paul is saying, you just remember how you were saved. I have one question for you, he says, verse 2. This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What did you originally believe? Was it law or gospel? How was it that you received the Holy Spirit? Was it by obeying the law or believing the gospel? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's a pretty basic question, and, and it's designed to get them to reflect on the power of the message that brought them to faith in the first place. They were, you know, they were in danger of forgetting that, forgetting the gospel. In their zeal to accommodate this other message, this different message, which was straight out of the law. Now, here's an important point to understand before we move on to the next point, and I want you to keep this firmly fixed in your thinking as we move through the rest of this passage, because actually starting here and continuing through the rest of the book of Galatians, Paul sets up this antithesis between law and gospel, and it's a critical antithesis. It's important to understand what he's saying. Several of the trends in today's theology that concern me, frankly, have all of this in common. They, they try to blur the line between law and gospel. Some have even denied that Paul made any antithesis between gospel and law. I, I don't see how you can make sense of this passage at all unless you recognize that antithesis, because it's clear, and it will become even more evident as you work through the rest of the epistle. But in making this antithesis, Paul is not saying that the law is bad or it's inherently evil. He, he deals with that very clearly in Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. By no means, he says, emphatically not. The law is not sin. It's not bad. It serves a good purpose. And as a matter of fact, it has several good purposes. The law eliminates every option we would think we have for salvation except for Christ. And therefore, the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, points us His direction. It teaches us what evil is, and therefore its moral precepts, as distinguished from the, the ceremonial precepts of the law, the moral content of the law is a sound rule of life for believers. So when Paul says, as he does in Romans 6.14, that we are not under the law but under grace, or when he says in Galatians 5.18 that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, he's not suggesting that the moral content of the law is irrelevant to how we live as Christians. He, he's not denying that the moral precepts of the law apply to us, as if, you know, it didn't matter whether, the, whether a Christian follows the moral principles of the Ten Commandments. What Paul is saying here is very simple. He's saying the law is not a means of justification. It's not an instrument of justification. The law's ceremonies are in no sense instruments by which we can gain entry into the new covenant or lay hold of justification. And this is also important, the law's threats of condemnation against sinners, those have been fulfilled in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, and thus the wrath that's displayed in the law is turned away from those who trust Christ for salvation. And it's in that sense that we're not under the law. That's why Scripture repeatedly points out that the law actually has a different message for sinners than the gospel does. We're not under the condemnation of the law. We live in the promise of the gospel. And so that's the first contrast, and it's a careful distinction between law and gospel, here's a second contrast you need to see. This one is the distinction between flesh and spirit. Verse 3, he's still using this blunt language, pointing out their 
unbelievable and inexcusable foolishness. Are you so foolish, he says? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And his argument here is really simple. If you, if you laid hold of salvation by faith in the very beginning, why would, you, why would you abandon the simplicity of faith in Christ the first time someone comes along and tries to tell you that your faith isn't going to be enough? Start adding requirements to the gospel after the fact, and you have, in essence, abandoned the gospel itself, and you're, you're adopting a different message. Or to put it in other terms that are relevant to these gospel twisters who crashed our Shepherds Conference, and also relevant to the N.T. Wright aficionados and, and several other recent attempts to modify the doctrine of justification. If simple faith in Christ is the instrument of justification at the beginning, by what twisted rationale would you want to make something other than faith necessary for final justification? If you can trust Christ alone for justification, why would you put your trust for the rest of your salvation in anything that you do for yourself? Here's an illustration that might help you understand why Paul's language is so harsh-sounding, why he, he, he calls them fools. He's, he's appalled at how foolish is this idea they want to accept. Why would he do that? I was thinking about this and remembering a few years ago, Darlene and I took a ship from Seattle to Alaska, and we got on the ship, you know, we simply trusted it to take us there. And one night into the voyage, the seas were rough, half the people on the ship were seasick. I mean, this was huge heaving waves, so much that you couldn't walk down the hallways of this ship. You just had to go to bed and strap yourself in and hope you survived. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not prone to motion sickness, but this ship was heaving up and down enough to cause even me to examine the wisdom of trusting this heavy husk of metal to get me all the way to Alaska, you know? Started to think about this. Now, I'm not really this stupid, but let's just suppose, imagine, if you will, that I became overwhelmed with the feeling that I could no longer trust the ship to get me to my destination. I wanted to get to Alaska, and I wanted to plant my feet on dry ground, and so I go to Darlene and announce in all seriousness that I'm, I'm scared to be on this ship, and so I'm going to get out and swim the rest of the way to Alaska. <laughs> what do you think she'd say to me? Are you nuts? Have you absolutely lost it? What makes you think you could ever swim under your own power and in your own strength all the way from here to Alaska? That's insane. And especially in rough water. You trusted the ship enough to get on it. Don't even think about getting off now. That would be suicide. That is exactly the spirit of Paul's message to the Galatians. Having received the Spirit of God by faith, and having begun the Christian life on that basis, why would you ever abandon the Holy Spirit and try to manufacture a self-made legal righteousness instead? And someone might say, well, okay, but I, I, I'm not going to abandon ship completely, but we need to help this ship reach its destination, so I'm going to jump in the water at the back and hang on to the ship while I paddle kick, and I'm going to help push it towards its destination. I'm going to keep trusting Christ, but just in case, I'm going to do all the legalistic stuff too. And you know what? That's still just totally insane, right? If you think there's additional stuff that you need to do in order to add your own merit to the work of Christ, you are not really trusting Christ at all. And in practical terms, the Holy Spirit is the seal and the guarantee of our covenant membership. The Holy Spirit is, not any ceremony or ritual. In 2 Corinthians 5, 5, and in Ephesians 1, 14, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit as our pledge of inheritance, the words he used. The indwelling Spirit is the guarantee, or in King James language, it's the earnest, or the down payment, or the security deposit, and collateral that guarantees our final salvation. In the words of the Apostle John, 1 John 3, 24, we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit that He gave to us. And Paul always taught this, and, and you can be sure he had taught this to the Galatians before he wrote this epistle, 
They were dead wrong to dream of giving up their confidence in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, who is the one true living guarantee that we are in the covenant and depend instead on an obsolete fleshly symbol from an obsolete covenant, circumcision. And so the expressions flesh and spirit here are shorthand for circumcision, which was a fleshly emblem of the old covenant, and the Spirit of God, who is the living spiritual symbol of our membership in the new covenant. And so if you're following, you have these contrasts. The first is a contrast between law and gospel. The second is a contrast between flesh and spirit. And the third is the most important contrast of all, because this is the one that sums up and explains all the others. And it is the contrast between works and faith. Verses 4 and 5, Paul continues questioning them. Did you suffer so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, there are two things in verse 4 that are significant, and I want to explain. The first has to do with the word suffer. And I don't think he's talking about, you know, only literal suffering and persecution here. Nothing in the context suggests that. And if he was talking about trials and hardships or persecutions or afflictions that were being inflicted on them, if they were truly victims of any kind of suffering, and Paul was referring to that, I think it would be totally out of character for Paul to bring that up in a context where he's actually scolding them. But he's using this expression idiomatically to speak of their experiences in general, the, the early part of their Christian walk. Did you experience so many things for nothing? In other words, all that you've gone through since you believed the gospel, was that all in vain? And this, again, is an appeal to their personal experience. He wants them to remember what a dramatic difference Christ has made in their lives. And here's the second thing I want you to see. He didn't believe that it was in vain. He's not, I don't think, really suggesting that he doesn't believe they're not really saved. This addendum at the end of verse 4, if indeed it was for nothing, that's a parenthetical comment that Paul tosses in there to let them know he hasn't written them off completely. He can't bring himself to believe that all of the gospel ministry that he labored in their midst, that all of that was completely in vain, totally worthless, as if they had never really believed the gospel in the first place. He's not buying that. And then verse 5 makes the key contrast. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, you won't hear me say this very often, but this is a verse where I actually like how the text is translated in the New International Version. Because it makes, it's not a direct translation, but it's a really good paraphrase for this verse, even if it's a looser than normal rendering of the Greek words, it explains what this means. Here's what it means. This is the simple sense of the text as it's been rendered in the NIV. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? That's the bottom line question. It's a contrast between faith and works. Why has God blessed you in the first place? Is it because you earned His approval with your own legal obedience, or because through faith you laid hold of His grace? To ask that question is to answer it. Anyone who has ever truly understood the gospel knows that salvation is a gift of divine grace. It is not a reward for our works. It's apprehended by faith. It is not apprehended by obedience to the law or good works of any kind. It's based on what Christ has done for us, not what we do for Him. And that's a major distinction. And it's a crucial point to get right because this is what makes the main difference between true Christianity and every false religion, including that of the Judaizers, including that of this little cult that came to Shepherd's Conference. This is why the doctrine of justification by faith is so supremely important. And it's also why this is no small issue of theological trivia to confront and refute errors like those. May God give us grace 
to understand the truth and the wisdom to defend it well. It's clear here, isn't it? I hope you can understand the Apostle Paul's passion and why he is so bold and and straightforward and even almost unfriendly sounding in rebuking what other people in the church thought was just a minor difference of opinion. Paul attacked it like it was a real threat because it was. And I hope you share his zeal for the gospel. May, may we all finish as we began, by faith, not by works, through the Spirit, not in the energy of our own fleshly efforts, and trusting completely in Christ and not in the works of the law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the perfect freedom of the gospel and Christ's gracious work on our behalf to redeem us from the guilt of sin and the condemnation of the law. We receive that salvation by grace through faith, as a gift, not as a reward, and certainly by no work of our own. Strengthen our faith and our trust in Christ, increase our love for Him, and may our lives reflect perfect rest in His perfect completed work. And may the brightness of His glory shine in us as we walk in newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.